What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's 1974 in Wichita, Kansas, and the two oldest children of the Otero family have just arrived home from school to find their parents and two younger siblings brutally murdered. The Otero family had recently moved to the small city, and their murder case came as a shock to the community. He's chosen to kill four people. That is quite a significant undertaking. And I think that really is testament to his arrogance and his hubris that he thought he could do this. The city was gripped by fear as it became increasingly obvious that a serial killer was at work. He would attack people in their own homes before binding, torturing, and ultimately killing them, seemingly for self-gratification. So there was clearly a sexual element to this offending. And they also discovered that the faces of some of the victims were quite bloated, which suggests that the killer strangled them and then stopped strangling them and then strangled them again. For years, the killer evaded the police, leaving behind little to no evidence. He was untraceable. Someone who is killing in such a way over a period of time is going to damage the community. There is going to be fear. There's going to be looking out of the curtains at the neighbors. It just breeds an appropriate paranoia amongst people. When's it going to happen next? Who's it going to be next? The man behind these gruesome killings was living among his victims in the very town he was terrorizing. He is a man who, for all intents and purposes, was upright citizen, and yet, while he was that on the surface, underneath there is no question at all, he was a monster. The killer, known to the public by his alter ego, came in and out of the shadows for 30 years, taunting investigators with minuscule clues. But in a moment of overconfidence, he was finally thrown into the light. If he'd have just sat there and kept his mouth shut, I'm not sure we'd ever caught him. And so, um, you know, that, that kind of arrogance and complacency came back to bite him pretty hard. His evil is a different evil, mainly because he thinks that he's entitled to it. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Dennis Rader was born March 9, 1945, in Pittsburgh, Kansas. He was the oldest child of William and Dorothea Rader's four sons. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and journalist Jeffrey Wansel say there was nothing particularly out of the ordinary about his upbringing. He was one of several children within a, a very traditional nuclear family. His father was strict, but not particularly abusive, and many children grew up in households like this. He was upright, he was a scout, he was on all sorts of programs for good children. He had the ability to blend in. He wasn't bullied, for example, as a lot of killers are. To those around him, Dennis Rader was an average, well-behaved child. 
However, in private, something sinister was beginning to simmer. Raider claims that when he was a youngster, he abused animals. So he hung a cat and he hung a dog. We do see, in quite a few cases of serial killers, animal harm in the background. As he went into puberty, he described himself as looking at girly mags, developing a fascination with underwear, and then significantly, and indeed deeply significant in his later crimes, was a fascination with bondage and sadomasochism. After graduating from his Wichita High School, Rader enrolled at Kansas Wesleyan College. However, he dropped out after one year. Then in 1966, Rader joined the United States Air Force, where he served for four years. He worked on systems. He was that kind of man. Systems are very much his kind of thing. He served abroad, sometimes in Europe. As far as we know, not a particularly distinguished career, but not a bad one. Upon returning home to Kansas, Rader got engaged to a woman named Paula Dietz, with whom he had attended school. They were married in 1971. Rader marries and has two children. And from the outside, they do very much look like the respectable cereal box family, just like any other regular American family. But Rader was about to give up his role as an everyday suburban father. In the winter of 1974, Rader very suddenly and inexplicably became a merciless killer. There has to be something that set him off because that first explosion of violence was so shocking, so dramatic, so utterly horrifying that you couldn't possibly have imagined it was like going from naught to 60 in two seconds. Joseph and Julie Otero, along with their five kids, were new arrivals to the Wichita neighborhood. They were looking to start a new chapter, but the Oteros were about to become Raiders' first victims. The Otero family had recently moved to Wichita because they wanted a new start. This was the beginning of a, a new chapter in their lives. But unfortunately, this was to be very short-lived because one day the teenage children arrive home to the most horrendous scene. On January 15, 1974, Wichita police were called to the Otero home. Detective Tim Ralph, one of the task force investigators working on Raider's case, gives details of the gruesome discovery. At the Otero house, they were actually called by the children. The three older children had come home and uh, uh, they had found uh, their mother and father. They called and the first responders, or the first people that arrived at that time, they, they went to the bedroom, they found the father and the mother. The scene was chilling. Dennis Rader had broken into the family home and murdered everyone in the house. This was the first time investigators were faced with the grisly methods that would soon become Raider's trademark. He binds, ties up husband and wife with a Venetian bind cord, suffocates them. Additionally, investigators discovered that the Otero parents had not been home alone at the time of their murder. The older children didn't want their younger siblings to come home and find this because they thought they were at school. And so the officers went to their elementary schools in the area and found that both of the younger siblings had not made it to school that day. After searching the rest of the house, officers found the bodies of nine-year-old Joseph and 11-year-old Josephine. 
Criminal pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton gives more details on the murders. Their 11-year-old daughter is found hanging in the basement, whether he killed her by hanging her or strangled her and then strung up the body. We have a situation where he's created elaborate knotwork and hung the body up. It's almost like some sort of macabre art display. Rader appeared to have fixated on the younger daughter, Josephine, because he seems to have spent the most time with her body. She was the prize and the others were just obstacles that he had to get out of the way. He kills the boy, ties him up, leaves on the floor of his bedroom, again suffocated. With his first victims, Rader began to develop what would eventually become his M.O., and what would ultimately give him the name people would come to fear. Local police began to build a profile for their killer. The Otero case provided an overall mindset of this person, that he certainly was into some kind of minding fantasy. The police found semen at the scene, so there was clearly a sexual element to this offending. And they also discovered that the faces of some of the victims were quite bloated, which suggests that the killer strangled them and then stopped strangling them and then strangled them again. So literally holding them on the edge of life and death, watching the life drain out of them and then giving it back. So having that power over somebody's survival or somebody's demise is something that this killer very much enjoyed. This was not, sadly, the act of a madman. It was the first of a series of killings in Wichita that would come to terrify the town. Despite the small amount of evidence found at the scene, investigators quickly reached a dead end. They were left with more questions than answers as to who could have viciously killed the Otero family. Then, just a few months later, in April 1974, Raider struck again. Raider starts escalating in the classic profile system. Catherine Bright, who's 21 years old and good-looking, he forces his way into the house with a gun. Catherine and her brother, Kevin, return at lunchtime to their house. And he forces Kevin to tie Catherine to a chair and begins to struggle with Kevin. Kevin is fighting back, and Raider really doesn't like this, so he shoots Kevin in the head. Now, miraculously, Kevin survives, and he's able to flee and summon help, but unfortunately, it's too late for his sister, Catherine. I think he tried to bind her up, but it just wasn't working, and the whole thing just came unraveled, and, and he would take out a knife and he would he would very viciously stab her several times and uh, then he left thinking that he had killed her and I don't think he realized that Kevin had run had run out and uh, Kevin got a hold of a neighbor who called the police when the first officers got there Catherine was still alive but she was barely breathing and uh, she couldn't identify her attacker and she was taken to the hospital and she died in surgery just a couple hours after that she's bound she is tortured and she's eventually killed Catherine Bright became Raider's fifth victim. Her brother Kevin was the first person able to give investigators clues to the killer's identity. He describes a, a white male, you know, 180 pounds. We were looking for a single person. Uh, you were looking for this white male in his late 20s. Could cover a description of quite a lot of men in Wichita, Kansas, but at least it's something. Raider once again slips behind the mask, returns to being a pillar of the community, the police are left struggling. 
Wichita police had no significant leads, and Raider was able to slink back into the shadows, waiting to strike again. In January, they have the Otero killings. In April, they have Catherine's killing and Kevin's attack. They have no idea what they have on their hands. I don't imagine they get an awful lot of these kinds of attacks in Wichita. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door, meaning you get to skip the hassle of going to the pharmacy. With the Cerebral mobile app, it's like having your personal care team wherever you go. You can message your care team and access self-care resources wherever you are. You can connect with your counselor and therapist on your own schedule through your laptop or the Cerebral mobile app. With Cerebral, you can get affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy, plus treatment options are available with or without insurance. For listeners of What Makes a Killer, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash what. That's C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash what. Go to Cerebral.com slash what for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of 30 bucks to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. One more time, Cerebral.com slash what. In 1974, Wichita, Kansas had experienced two terrible attacks by Dennis Rader. With few clues, the investigation had been slow moving. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel talks about the so-called breakthrough police had that fall. In October 1974, and the police arrest three men on the suspicion of the Otero killings. Raider is furious. This is an outrage. Those were my killings. Nobody else. I'm not, I'm not a, this, is, this is not, absolutely not acceptable. You can almost hear him saying it to himself. This is not right. Furious over the idea that his kills had been attributed to someone else, Raider wrote a letter to the local newspaper describing the Otero family murders in great detail. He took the letter and hid it inside of a textbook at the Wichita Public Library. Raider then called the Otero murder hotline to let them know where it could be found. In his letter claiming credit for the Otero killings, it's not quite um, well written. It's uh, clumsy, misspelt, bad grammar, but the overall motive is absolutely clear. In his letter, Raider attempted to justify the killings, saying, I can't stop it so the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victims being torture and being mine. Raider also took his taunting further announcing his intentions to kill again and providing investigators with a nickname for the monster they were hunting. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley gives insight into Raider's motivation. 
He wanted a brand, he wanted an identity. He didn't just want to be a nameless killer. So he didn't want to get caught. And he also wanted recognition for his crime. So he had to come up with a moniker, bind, torture, kill. The ruthless killer that citizens of Wichita had feared for a year finally had a name, BTK. And as the people of the city became increasingly worried about future attacks, Dennis Rader began working at a new job that would allow him to scope out as many victims as he wanted. He'd gone to work for a security company installing home security kits. Well, you can imagine what the residents of Wichita were doing at this moment. Suddenly, there's a serial killer on the loose. What are they going to be doing? They bought elaborate security systems and burglar alarms, which actually turned out to be quite ironic because the killer who was targeting the victims had actually worked for a security company. So the very person who should have been invested in keeping people safe was the one who we had to watch out for. However, Raider went quiet for three years. Then in 1977, BTK ended his hiatus. In 1977, Rada murders Shirley Vayan. Now, she's a 26-year-old mother of three. Rada follows home Shirley's five-year-old son. Once again, he forces his way into her house. He locks the children in the bathroom and he proceeds to torture and kill Shirley. The children are screaming in the bathroom. The only thing you must be grateful for in imagining this horrifying scene is they couldn't actually see what was happening to their mother. Having killed Shirley, Radar left the scene for police to find. Yet again, Radar disappears the scene as if a ghost. There's no clear forensic evidence. It's a random killing. Once again, Radar had used strangulation to claim his victim. Police began to scrutinize how Radar left his victims. It was becoming clear that the rope tying was an integral part of Raider's ritual. Criminal pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton elaborates. This is so far outside normal experience. The body seems to be almost secondary to displaying his skill at tying knots. December 8th, 1977, another murder. After the murder of Shirley Byan, Raider kills Nancy Fox. She's a 25-year-old secretary, and he'd, he'd likely stalked her for some time. He's getting better at his offending at this point in time. He's looking at the house. He cuts the phone lines outside. He waits for inside the house. He waits until she gets home. She is, if you like, the archetypal BTK victim. He broke into her house, completely invading her privacy. He tied her up, he strangled her with a belt, he masturbated at the scene. But that wasn't all, he actually called the police. So there is a tape of Dennis Rader's voice, so they have the voice of the offender. This is Raider celebrating once again his own power. Here he is, swaggering. There could be no other word for it. That he knows something that nobody else knows, and he's taken another life. Nancy Fox became Raider's seventh victim. Though police had been hunting for four years, they still had no idea who was behind these disturbing murders. 
Raider left behind no evidence to link him to the killings, and the 911 call did little to help. And Raider? He wasn't done yet. He wanted more. He wanted attention. And he had a plan to gain more notoriety. Raider sees all of the attention that serial killers like Ted Bundy are getting, and I think he wants a slice of that action. But he wants to be more than Ted Bundy, more than the other serial killers. And I think that's very much what drives his offending and the form that that takes. A month after Nancy's death, Raider sends a note to the local television station in which he uh, explains that he can close her eyes so that she can pass away. I mean, it's an act of the most extraordinary vanity. And again, refers in the note to the television station to, I'll be doing it again. Those seven murders back in 1978 became directly attributed to BTK. And uh, he had made several communications. He'd sent them through the local paper at the time. So those seven were always attributed to him. Wichita detective Randy Stone noticed BTK was clearly enjoying the newfound attention. He liked watching himself on TV. So, you know, communicating with the news media was, was part of his way of achieving the notoriety and being publicized and everything. And he enjoyed watching himself on TV and he favored the news media that had the best signal reception on his television. I think one of the things that sustains Raider's appetite for publicity is that he knows full well that he's not just terrifying individual victims, he's terrifying the whole town. They are in absolute fear. The sales of his security systems are going up rapidly. It's quite clear that there is a serial killer at work. It's quite clear that all the victims are in Wichita, which is not a huge town. And it's quite clear the police have no suspects. The community were particularly terrified by these murders because the police had to tell the community that there was a serial killer on the loose. They had to do this in order for people to take steps to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. The quiet and the peacefulness of 1970s suburbia really has been completely shaken by these murders. Despite countless hours of investigating, Wichita police knew they had no leads as to who BTK was and could do nothing to stop him from killing again. However, after the death of Nancy Fox, BTK seemed to retire from his evil ways. It would be almost 10 years before he struck again, and police were left on edge waiting for him to resurface. He disappears again, and indeed pretty much disappears completely. Two years pass, three. Raider goes dormant for a period of time. Whether there are murders that aren't linked to him or not is a matter of speculation. As years went by without another attack from BTK, Wichita police called in the FBI. The team formed a task force, nicknamed Ghostbusters, with the singular goal of uncovering the identity of the infamous BTK. Despite three years of investigating, the task force was ultimately unsuccessful in their mission. There was a theory that that he was either in jail or dead or had left the area. That theory was the basis for Ghostbusters, uh, was the theory for, the basis for searching for men that had left the area after 1979. More than 600 suspects were tracked by the task force. However, none could be connected to the murders. Rumors began to surface about what had happened to BTK and he became somewhat of a mythical figure among the people of Wichita. 
Wichita didn't have a boogeyman, they had BTK. They started to believe that the terror of BTK was now just a dark spot in the history of the city. Until April of 1985. So it isn't until 1985 that he kills again. But this time, he moves his victimology. And instead of a young woman, it's an older woman, 53, called Marine. In fact, she lives very close to Raider. OK, he hasn't actually killed anybody for years. Can you imagine what must be building up inside that tortured mind? With Marine Hedge, Raider is changing his modus operandi. Not only does he murder her, he then takes the body of all places to a church where he poses her in degrading positions and takes photographs and ultimately dumps the body. This is the use of a human being as an object, as a plaything. BTK was back, and he continued to evade capture. Police were still unable to identify the killer, and Raider was regaining confidence. Raider dumps Nancy's body about seven miles away in a ditch, clearly takes some trophies, as is wont, and shows no regard for his victim whatever. That case was not initially connected to BTK, mainly because it was a completely different part of town. It was a few miles outside of Wichita, and how it's, you know, almost bordering Wichita, but at that time in a little city called Park City. Then a year later, on September 16, 1986, Raider killed again, this time murdering 28-year-old Vicki Weggerly. Vicki had been home with her two-year-old son when Raider attacked. Raider spots an attractive 28-year-old mother called Vicki walking towards her house. We're not exactly sure how Raider got access to her. But what we do know is he did exactly what he's done before. Her husband is driving home for lunch. Their two-year-old son is left in the house with the body of his dead mother. Her husband discovers the two-year-old sitting on the floor on his own and goes into another room to discover his wife's body. However, BTK was not a suspect in the murder of Vicki Weggerly. Police initially believed this was a domestic homicide and Vicky's husband was questioned. Judge Kevin O'Connor, the deputy district attorney at the time, recalls the case. Mr. Wagerly, her husband, was always considered to be a suspect. So at the time I became involved was when the DNA could be replicated. And so they had the ability to replicate the DNA so you would have enough to be able to test it without using up your full sample. By the late 80s, police began utilizing advanced technology to aid in solving cases. Homicide cases like that of Vicki Weggerly were some of the first to implement this type of testing. We started to learn about things like DNA, and uh, there was so much more, even video and, and the computers came along, and the ability to track people through all those different mediums became something that we had to kind of look back and see if we could use some of that new technology for some of the old evidence. The DNA recovered from the scene proved the innocence of Vicky's husband, and the Weggerly murder went cold. BTK had once again gotten away, and Dennis Rader eased his way back into everyday life, completely unassuming to those around him. Rader disappears. No contact with the police, no contact with the local television station or the local newspapers. 
he sinks back into the facade that he's been presenting for so very long of being an upright citizen, married father of two. Indeed, he doesn't kill again for five years. On January 19, 1991, while chaperoning his son's Cub Scout trip, Dennis Rader committed his final known murder. The victim was 62-year-old Dolores E. Davies. Dolores doesn't entirely fit the picture with what he's been doing before. She's older, quite a lot older. He's on a Cub Scout camp, which he slips away from, clearly supposed to give him an alibi, once again binds her, tortures her, and eventually kills her, this time with her own pantyhose. And he dumps her body a long way away. So the police find it difficult to fit a pattern here. This, this lady, Dolores, is again naked, dumped, but it's not anywhere near the house. The scenes were different. He removed them from the house. He had to kind of move his victim, his ideal victim had to move to where he could control them more, and that meant a little bit more mature victim. Police were left with no leads and nothing that could help them identify the killer. This time, Rader returns to the body and takes Polaroid pictures of the victim, all the while wearing a feminine mask. Yet again, the police are confused. Rader disappears again off the radar. So you've probably heard about microdosing. If you do a quick search on the internet, you'll find that a lot of people these days are microdosing to feel healthier and perform better. This week, What Makes a Killer is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdose Gummies can help get you in the zone while doing creative work or use them at night to help you wind down, chill out, and sleep like a baby. Plus, microdose gummies taste great. Microdose gummies are available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com and use promo code WHAT to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can also be found in the What Makes a Killer show description. Again, that's microdose.com, M-I-C-R-O-D-O-S-E.com, and use the promo code WHAT. By 1991, Dennis Rader had murdered 10 people by strangulation and was known to the people of Wichita by his alter ego, BTK. Bind, torture, kill. He managed to elude authorities, leaving behind no traceable evidence. Dennis Rader was able to roam the very streets he terrorized as a free man, convincing his family and community he was an average citizen, caring father, and a humble churchgoer. But in 2004, with the 30th anniversary of his first murders in the news, his desire for infamy swelled once again and finally put Dennis Rader on the path to being caught. Journalist Jeffrey Wansell explains. A local is going to write a book called Nightmare in Wichita. If ever there was anything that was going to provoke Raider's vanity. It was going to be that somebody else was going to tell his story. No, if anyone's going to tell my story, it's going to be me. Wichita detective Randy Stone and criminal psychologist Elizabeth Yardley give more details. 
In the anniversary of the killing of the Otero family, one of the newspaper reporters did a story to say, you know, here's the anniversary story. It's, it's another year and, and it hadn't been solved. And evidently, BTK read that story and read in the story that there was a book being written about it, kind of had the opinion that who's more qualified to write the book than, than him. At this point, Raider resumes writing to the media. He wants to be back in the spotlight. He wants to be in control of the story. It's very, very important to him that he has credit for these crimes that he committed. He doesn't want anybody else taking away from that. Raider wrote to the local paper using the pseudonym Bill Thomas Kilman, initials BTK, that he had used in the past. He also included a copy of Vicki Weggerly's driver's license and photos from the murder scene. Finally, investigators had some solid clues to help uncover the identity of the killer. Raider began to communicate more and more with the press and the police, slowly giving them more pieces of the puzzle. First of all, he leaves little items that he's taken from the scenes in unlikely places. He starts taunting the police, literally, saying, well, of course, you think you may know, but actually I know, and what's more, I can prove it. Here's some examples. Then one of his ominous communications allowed investigators to make a breakthrough. Judge Kevin O'Connor and Randy Stone elaborate. He had left a cereal box at Home Depot. Uh, here in Wichita. He thought it was funny that to use cereal boxes because he's a serial killer. Law enforcement went out to Home Depot and started doing some interviews. And one of the employees there said, yeah, he found a something in the bed of his pickup truck, but he threw it out. Um, he took it home, opened it up. There was a doll. There was some other stuff in there. And he, didn't, he thought it was just some, some joke or prank, so he threw it away. He didn't take the garbage down to the end of the driveway and law enforcement was able to recover that package. And during the course of the investigation, Home Depot was able to provide us with a video of the parking lot. And so we were able to see a vehicle come in and that vehicle could be identified as a Jeep Cherokee or a similar type vehicle. That was important to us because that was information at that time that law enforcement knew, but he didn't know law enforcement knew. Police had finally caught a glimpse of the elusive BTK. The security camera footage was not clear enough to give an accurate identification. Police needed more to catch their killer. In an effort to keep himself hidden, Raider's communication methods were becoming increasingly complicated. The police and he start communicating through small ads in the Wichita Eagle. Finally, he asks the police in one of the communications, what if I were to give you a floppy disk with more details of the killings? Um, could you identify me? Tim Ralph, a task force investigator on the BTK case, remembers the moment when the tides turned in the investigation. He asked us, you know, be honest, you know, because the police can't lie. Well, we can lie if we're catching a serial killer. And, and then he was told, you can send us whatever you want. We won't trace it. BTK sent a floppy disk to the local TV station with more of his writings. The police recovered the disk and realized that BTK had made a major mistake that blew the case wide open. We were contacted by KSAS Fox TV, and they had received a package. They didn't initially recognize it as, as being from him, but then when they opened it up and saw the contents, which included the, the floppy disk, they called the police department. They called me and said, hey, we got a floppy disk. And I remember 
and will never forget being present when the disc was put into the computer and Randy Stone, the computer expert, went through the language on the disc, which is beyond me. You know, at the time, I'm sitting in a little cubicle, facing the laptop, doing thing, and I look behind me and there's like 20 people all crowded around a semicircle around me. So it's one of those no pressure, don't screw this up type of things. So I imaged it and I opened up the image and started looking through it and there's the file on there, test A. RTF, which was a Microsoft Office, or it's a Word document file. And then you see Dennis, and then more gibberish, and you see uh, Christ Lutheran Church. When you saw that, there was another detective sitting next to, to Randy, who then Googled the Christ Lutheran Church, and there up in the corner of their website was a picture of the president of the church, Dennis. I still get goosebumps remembering that because you're looking at that and going, that's him. It had been three decades since the first BTK murder, and investigators had a suspect. Now they had to prove that Dennis Rader was, in fact, BTK. So then we were off and running. We learned that Rader had an address in Park City, and we went down the street that Rader was said to have lived on. You remember that little vehicle that was in the Home Depot parking lot? It was in Rader's driveway. At that point is when you knew, you know, you didn't know how this was going to end, but you knew we'd got him. And I made a phone call I didn't think I'd ever be able to make, but I called Kenny and I said, you know, we, we got him. But this still wasn't enough evidence to make the arrest. Investigators needed hard proof that Dennis Rader was the BTK killer. They have got no probable cause to demand a DNA sample from Rader, so they take the unlikely step of going to the hospital asking for a cervical smear that his daughter had given and comparing the DNA that they got from various crime scenes, the semen they'd found. And they find that it's extremely close. The match is in cream. Must be a family member. With the DNA evidence, police could finally move in on their suspect. A large contingent of people <laughs> were sent toward Park City on uh, February the 25th of 2005. And at 12.15, he was taken into custody. Raider is finally arrested and is eventually charged with 10 murders, including the Oteros. Investigators had their suspicions about the extent of the crimes committed by BTK. But up until his confession, only Dennis Raider knew the true horror of his actions. The interrogation was unnerving. We had broken up the case into several different sections, so we started to rotate in investigators, and he would be more than a year, and talked for almost 34 hours. And he almost saw himself as an instructor of, as he called it, uh, you know, the, the golden age of serial killing. When they're done with the interviews, I'm back from doing my search warrants. He's in the interview room, and they put the, the vest on him, and they're hooking him up with the shackles and belly chain and that kind of thing. And I just kind of stuck my head in the door and said, um, it's nice to be able to put a face go along with the name that I found on the floppy disk. And he looks up, and he's kind of got this, this shackles like that, and looks up, so, oh, so you're the one, huh? And I said, yeah, I'm the one. So we uh, kind of joked back and forth. And he was, it was in good mood. He was joking, and he said, oh, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to have to find you and stuff your mouth full of a case of floppy disks. Now police could confirm that the infamous BTK was off the streets and in custody. So we, we took him over to the jail. Everybody in the holding cells and area in there knew that it happened. The cells in there are all glassed off, and so all the 
inmates in there. They all come up to the glass and they're looking in the glass and then they start pounding on the glass, chanting his name, chanting, you know, pounding on the glass, saying, BTK, BTK. And then he's got a big old smile and he's got his hands there. He goes, two thumbs up to everybody chanting his name. So, I mean, he just loved that. On March 1st, 2005, Dennis Rader was charged with the murders of the Otero family, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, Maureen Hedge, Vicki Weggerly, and Dolores E. Davis. When he first is charged and formally brought before a judge, he refuses to say anything, to plead. So the judge pleads not guilty for him. Radar says nothing. That was in March 2005. In June 2005, he's finally brought to trial. But before the trial properly begins, Rader changes his plea. So he did not necessarily want to have a hearing. He pled guilty to the murders, and he tried to avoid any type of hearing whatsoever. The district attorney thought uh, that it was very important that the community knows what happened. And the best way to do that is to have a public hearing. Because once it's a public hearing, then it's open. Now, the monster is really out of the bottle because Rader is perfectly prepared to accept that he's got away with it for 30 years and that he's going to go down in history as BTK. And what's more, he's going to make sure the world knows just how evil he was. Over the course of the hearing, Rader described his murders in great detail, showing little remorse for what he'd done. He offered no apology for his actions, and observers were left stunned by both his behavior and his attitude. Most of these sentencing hearings take a couple of hours. This one took three days, and they would present evidence from the murders and really just kind of combine, this is what we had at the crime scene, this is what his confession says. And it was just to kind of confirm to the community, this is really him, this is what happened. And then you had an opportunity for the victims and their families to make a statement, and it was just truly heartbreaking and painful, but hopefully it helped them that finally, after all these years, the person that had murdered their loved one was uh, was done, was going to prison. Dennis Rader was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum term of 175 years. He's currently in solitary confinement at El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. He will remain there for the rest of his life. One of my favorite shots is uh, him being led into the uh, penitentiary over in El Dorado, Kansas. In the end, Dennis Rader took the lives of 10 people, two of whom were children. The shadow he cast over Wichita as BTK was long and dark, and the citizens of the city will never forget the terror he caused for more than 30 years. There is something about Rader that genuinely chills the soul. And something about that look in his eyes, I can never, ever get it out of my mind. That little smirk, that little glimmer of, I'm better than you. I really am God. I'm not only the devil, I am God as well. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. 
Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... In July 1975, the people of Manchester, England, were shocked to hear about the heinous murder of an 18-year-old girl. Her face had been shattered beyond recognition. I probably haven't seen um, in just that extent on anybody um, in my total service. The killer, later nicknamed the Beast of Manchester, would go on to murder two other teenage girls in absolutely horrific ways. This is a complete sociopath who's out of control. There is no other word for that than evil. It's depravity at the highest possible level.